0: Didn't you lose a lot of weight recently? Didn't I? Like, no. Yeah, that was a couple of years ago. Yeah, ten yeah. stone weight loss. Ten stone. Ten, ten stone. How did you do that? By uh, training a lot, and I was uh, eating uh, eating healthily. Well, let's yeah. have a look
1: because this was we're going to talk about this because Tyson has a book out, which is an amazing story and it's an amazing journey you went on. But let's have a look at a picture because this is
0: Tyson at his biggest.
2: Oh my, oh my god! god. We'll
0: wow.
1: wow. And the, and wow.
2: That is a glow up. I don't think that's that that So you've gone
0: from how big were you top left there? Top left, I was 28 stone. Wow. And then and bo- bottom uh, right, I was 18 stone. Wow. So, so 10 yeah. stone. And how long did that take you to shift? Took me about seven months. That's... Well, that's surprisingly that so a fast. very quick period. But you know? I can put weight on very quick. I can also take it off quick. but. Yeah. I didn't put that on overnight. That was like um, two and a half years of not training and not, not eating right, not doing anything. And that was depression as well. And it was depression, that, it? yeah, and anxiety, mental health problems. But it was the first time in my life, first two and a half years where I'd never done any training for a long period of time. And I was just eating takeaways and drinking a lot. I was drinking a lot of beer and stuff like that. And I've put a lot of weight on. And, uh, so,
1: and how did you spiral down to that? What, what, what do you think caused
0: that depression? I've always suffered with mental health problems my whole life, but I didn't really know what it was. Uh, even as a kid, I used to have anxiety, and I'd have that feeling of being left alone and being um, just anxious all the time. And I didn't know what it was until I got diagnosed, like, at 29 years old or something.
1: And it's, you know, that's... I think people will be surprised to because when they look at someone like you, who's obviously very, you know, physically very capable person, but also yeah. massively successful, in your chosen field. To hear you talk about having those issues, that's that's quite something. It's, and,
0: and I think it surprises people to know that. Yeah, you know, it, for me especially, like, I come from a, a fighting family uh, where everyone's, like, a, a tough guy. Nobody speaks about their feelings. And, and especially, like, not to come out with something like, oh, I've got mental health problems. And for me as well, like, all my friends, family and things, they look at me like I'm some sort of superhero. They don't ever think of me as a, as a man, as a normal person. So when I come out with all that sort of stuff, everyone was like, what? Mm. This person's got like weakness or whatever? Mm. And I didn't see it as a weakness because I thought I can't suffer in silence anymore. For a long, long, long period of time, I used to bottle it all up and, and it come to a point where it was just an explosion, like shaking a bottle of champagne up and it just exploded. And presumably you weren't comfortable
1: at that stage, you know, talking
0: to Paris about these things. No, everyone thought I was, like, an attention seeker or... They didn't really understand it because none of my family had any education on mental health problems, so they didn't know what it really was. just a usual stigma on mental health. A lot of people are uneducated on the matter. Mm. They don't understand mm. what it is. And, and also, just because coming you can't from see a,
1: a working-class family, there's that feeling almost
0: like it's a weakness, like it's something you should be ashamed of or you should... Yeah, it was like, well, if you've got this, keep it to yourself and don't, don't broadcast it. Don't tell the neighbours, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But I, I decided to go against all that good advice. <laughs> and I thought, you know what, there's got to be other people out there like me suffering. And even if I help one person, I'll, I'll feel better. And I ended up coming out about it, wrote a couple of books about it and a yeah. documentary about it, and it, it went to be a big thing and helped yeah, millions of people. it's really... The documentary's
1: great and the book's great as well. The, the Furious Method. Uh, and it's an incredible book about what goes through uh, a champion's mind when he's getting ready for a fight, but also the struggles you went through away from the ring as well. And this is a really tremendous read. So uh, I'll let you have... Wow. Our, I'll disinfect my copy and you can have it in a covid safe way afterwards. All
0: right. Yes, I'd love to read it But don't you think that with this um, lockdown that we've had that so many more people are suffering from mental health I mean I have a few friends and it's been terrible just to be locked up by yourself and not go out I mean, I can't think of anything More upsetting than just being shut in a room and not being able a little, you know apartment. Yeah, suicide rate is is high. Yes. It's higher than it's been for yeah. a long time. Depression, all that sort of stuff is, is high. What, what was your lowest point then? When was the point when you thought, you know, I really have to get help? 2016, I was, um, I was really, really ill this day and I'd been planning my suicide for quite a long time. So you'd actually been planning to kill i have been planning it in my head what I was going to do it and whatever. And I, I, I didn't think I'd have the minerals to do it. Um, and this one day, I also thought, this is the day. So I got in this car, I was in a, I was in a, a red Ferrari and I got up to a high speed, I was going to crash into a motorway bridge. Um, And I was dead set on doing it. I was 100% in my mind I was going to do it, and this was the day it was going to happen. And as I was heading towards that bridge, flying, um, I got for about, I don't know, what felt like was really close. It must have been a a few hundred yards away. I had this voice speak to me and say, no, don't do this. You're going to destroy your family's life. Your kids are going to grow up with no father. So I immediately pulled over to the side of the road and I could feel my heart beating in my chest and I was sweating and I was in a right state. And that was the first moment in time that I realised I couldn't do it on my own and I needed medical help. Yeah. Um, but why do you think,
1: how did you get to the stage where you thought death was the answer? What, what, what was compelling you, know, you
0: to? I was waking up every day and I didn't want to live anymore. I lost the passion to live. Want. So there was nothing to excite you in life, and you weren't feeling connected to your family, I guess? Yeah, nothing way. mattered to me. You know, when you're so low, you get to a low point. Nothing really matters, not family, not kids, not anything. And you're at that moment where you're going to jump off. It's, it's very difficult to, to come back. Yeah. Um, and that low point, it lasted for a long, long time. It was a long period of time, years, actually. But thank heavens
1: you saw because, you know, I know somebody committed suicide, and the interesting thing about it, uh, it's obviously a tragic thing, but afterwards, none of us had known that he was suffering with depression, he'd hidden it so well from everyone. Mm. You know, his closest family knew, but yeah. none of us who knew him professionally knew it's usually
2: that. Usually, the way, isn't it? People mm. don't feel like they can speak, so that's the last option. If you have people around that you are open with, that usually takes away the issue a little bit, doesn't it? For sure, problem so shared, d- problem halved. How
0: did you get over it? I mean, how did you recover? Well, I um, I started to see a therapist. And at first I didn't think it was going to be for me. I thought this guy's going to just go and tell all his mates, everywhere champion in the world has got all these problems, whatever. And after going there a couple of times, I realised that if I'd have done this ten years ago,
2: yeah. mm. I'd
0: have had a much happier, better life. Because my life's always been like a coaster, it's been up and down. I've never had any stable mm. moments. It's just been high or lows. Um, and I realised that if I, like I said, if I went there ten years previous, I'd have never have had to experience up that low and the. the about to commit suicide and all that sort of stuff. But
1: thank you. And it's lovely now, knowing, you know, hearing you talk about it this way, obviously, will help a lot of people, I would have thought, mm. but knowing that you can tell your children that dad felt that bad, dad felt that low, and you, and if you feel that low, you can find help as well. I mean, it'll be a, such a positive role for them, role model for them to see you...
0: One million percent, you know. If I can come back from where I was, we saw the state of me. I was 28 stone. Yeah. I was heart attack material, um, to turn it back round and, and get back to, to being number one in the world again at my sport, um... It was a miraculous turnaround. I'm no one special. I was drinking 20 pints of beer. He's and no one special. Like he's just the heavyweight champion yeah. of the world. <laughs> oh, it's no yeah, one that's special.
2: All.
0: <laughs> but you
1: are special. But, yeah, anybody it can that, do it. Yeah. Anybody can do it. You know, it's interesting because Russell's done quite a lot in the field. Because you have a podcast, don't you? About men and, and so, emotions and health in that way.
2: I mean, it's so important. I, so I can't big up enough what you've just shared. I don't think you realize that someone like hyper, hyper masculine like you sharing your story, the type of men it will speak to. It won't be speaking to nice middle-class men sat around in a circle ready to discuss their mental health. It'll be speaking to plumbers and tilers and people that will feel empowered to speak out. That's the first thing I want to say. Thank you. What I observed was the resources are getting better for men and I know there's a lot of things in female mental health obviously but the male suicide rate speaks for itself. There's something going wrong with men and you described it brilliantly. It's this bottling up This fizzing, this inability to share. Mm. And a lot of these um, things that are being done are for people from a more educated or middle-class background, and working-class man gets left behind. And the thing that's missing, it's not for everyone, is humour. Humour often unlocks blokes Better than it does girls. You've only got to go into the girls' WhatsApp group versus the boys' WhatsApp group to see it in action. Girls' WhatsApp group, there will be jokes and banter in there. It'll be like, I'm having trouble with my boyfriend. You're right, babe. Debbie's got problems. Prosecco ambulance, Debbie's house, <laughs> boom, everyone over. <laughs> Whereas on the bloke's WhatsApp group, you've got to look for it in between, you know, banter, goat porn, I'm feeling depressed, goat porn. What goat was that last <laughs> mission? In between the two dirty videos yeah, yeah. will be Darren <laughs> telling you he's got an issue. <laughs> you've got to listen out that little bit harder because. Yeah. I'm not I'm not one for like all oh, men like this women like this comedy's moved on But what I've observed the key difference between men and women I, I can observe is women tend to have other women Circling forming a protective you know, carols looking yeah. down guard the eggs form Their a circle around Carol <laughs> um, Whereas the key thing girls are better at in my family and my female friend women will talk about a problem when there's no solution They'll be like, Do you know what, there's no solution, doesn't matter, get Linda over, light an aromatherapy candle, talk about it, we feel better, have a glass of Chardonnay. Whereas blokes will be like, can't be solved, why talk about something that can't be solved? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, whereas the very fact of talking is an, is an amazing thing. You know, blokes will be like, Gary's got problems, I don't want to watch it, put him in the bushes. <laughs> <Yeah>. It's your <laughs> deposit to Falaraki, you're going to lose, Gary. <laughs> and we've got to change this up.
3: In October 2020, we made history at the South Morton Boxing Club by staging the world's first behind-closed-doors white-collar boxing show. We got over 10,000 views on the night across 103 countries. Now we're bringing the live rumble back, bigger and better than before. Follow the fighters in the build-up and vote on the night for your favourites. See all the thrills, spills and skills from the best in white-collar boxing, live and free at the KO Cup. Okay, Peter, so today I wanted to talk about an interesting development that came up this weekend um, to do with the heavyweight scene and really what we've been talking about for ages. Obviously, we're waiting for the big Fury Joshua announcement. You know, we're hoping that's going to come later in the week or the week after. It looks like, you know, the Middle East, Saudi is the leading contender uh, to land that fight. But, you know, for a long time, Peter, we've been talking about the three kings and we talked about Joshua, Fury and Wilder and settling settling their fights. And as we know, in March last year, you know, Fury put in a totally dominant performance against Wilder. Beat him up for eight rounds, stopped him in eight rounds, and Mark Breeden threw the towel in, in round eight, and that's how that fight ended. And then we be waiting to see what happens after that. You know, we didn't necessarily disqualify Wilder for that because there was supposed to be a third fight that was all supposed to be contracted. And you know, obviously we thought Wilder's got a lot more to give. And you know, will AJ, a Cope with Wilder, it was all part of the part of the mix. We wanted to see who was going to come out on top out of these three. And then we did the where's Wilder thing. We talked about the three kick. What's happening with Wilder? Why isn't he coming back? And we had very strange emanations from the Wilder camp. We had all the excuses starting off with the suit being too heavy. um, And as you know, Breland was sacked straight after um, the the fight for throwing in the towel. Then there was talk about Fury's gloves being tampered with, talks about uh, Wilder's water being tampered with, all these excuses and all this talk about this evidence will come out, this evidence will come out. We have evidence that all these things have happened and nothing comes out. And then apparently when the six month um, contractual period for Wilder to enforce his rematch with Fury expired, Then Wilder started saying, oh, actually, I want want the third match when Fury had moved on and was talking with Joshua and so on. So what is happening with Wilder? Now, the thing is we never had any confirmation because we had these wild accusations coming out of the camp, but nothing actually happening. And then really interesting this weekend, on Saturday, Mark Breland, who was in Wilder's Corner and threw that towel in, um, did an interview with uh, The Fight Is Right, run by two friends of mine, uh, Zundia Jair and Spencer And Spencer Fearon is a good friend of mine. Spencer has one of the biggest um, address uh, books in boxing. I mean, he he probably, uh, maybe not as big as Eddie Hearns, but not far off behind. So Spencer can kind of get a hold of anyone in boxing. And he got this interview with Breland, who for the first time broke his silence and talks about what happened in the Wilder camp, and what he sees happening going forward. So it's a fascinating interview. And for anybody that doesn't know, just to recap, who Mark Breland is: um, Mark Breland was a co-trainer of Deontay Wilder right from when he uh, turned over from the amateurs. He came in to assist Jay Diaz, who has been, you know, Wilder's Wilder's head trainer. Mark Breland was brought in to bring in the experience because Mark Breland's resume is unbelievable. I mean, five times Golden Glove champions. To put that in perspective. Sugar Ray Robinson won four Golden Gloves Championships. So, you know, Mark Breeland won five. So, you know, all time record with that. Um, he was part of that amazing 1984 Olympic team um, and won gold at the 1984 Olympics. Then he won on, went on to become two times World to Weight Champion of the World. So, a breadth of experience, you know, superlative boxer, you know, incredible experience, incredible fighter. And he brought that to the Wilder Camp, which, you know, to be honest, they needed. Now, the, the relationship seemed to be fine all the way up until the Fury fight. Breland, quite rightly in my opinion, you know, with that very wise head in boxing, through the towel in when he thought that Wilder was just, you know, a few punches away from getting seriously hurt and was taking in a bad beating. He was immediately sacked by Wilder, um, who said that he was on the verge of some sort of amazing comeback, which I think everybody outside of Wilder's ego knew was just fantasy. Um, then he was reinstated, then he was sacked again, and then some. Some nasty stuff started to come out. They started to say, "Look, you know, the reason we sacked him again is we think that Breland tampered with Wilder's water, Wilder, you know, and, and drugged Wilder somehow so that his legs went during the fight." So, you know, not only was the man unceremoniously sacked twice, um, you know, he was then slandered. And you know, he's a very dignified guy. You know, he's a, he's a guy, a man of great integrity. So, you know, it was very unfair. But he didn't actually say anything. He didn't talk about, you know, this until this weekend. Um, so he spoke to Spencer and Tunde, and it was a fascinating insight. Again, you know, you you can't underline, you know, how you know how respectful this man is, the integrity of the man, and then obviously the experience we've talked about. But he was quite scathing, um, you know. In, 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 I mean, there, were, there was some talk. The, the the issues were tackled directly. For example, the issue of Fury's gloves. Does he think Fury's gloves were loaded? He said, absolutely no way. Um, they went through, as you know, that the somebody from the opposing camp has to go and watch the fighters' hands be wrapped, as well as state commissioners uh, before the fight. So you know, you're know, you watching the hands wrapped, taped, and the gloves go on. Now, it turns out Jay Diaz, the co-trainer, was in the dressing room with fury, watching that taping going on. So really, if there was any sort of indication of foul play in the glove tampering, why didn't Jay, Jay Diaz pick up on it? Um, you know, as Breland said. Although he did use that as a bit of a dig. He said, look, you know, JDS. What JDS knows about boxing. They probably could have put a plaster cast in there and he wouldn't have noticed. So there was also a little dig there, but he said, look, that was out of my control. The water tamper, he said, watch the tape. I'm nowhere near the water. And he was obviously quite hurt by this as well because he said, look, it's not how I operate. You know, if you win, I win. That's what it's all about, you know? And like I say, for a man with that integrity to, to, to be accused of that, I think it's is terribly unfair. So, so that was it was quite dismissive as well. When asked about a few, third Fury fight, this was the sort of real dunumant, he said, he's done, Wilder is done, and he will never beat Fury anyway. So that was a really interesting insight, you know, he said, um, you know, Wilder is done, and he said and I'm done with him. So. He doesn't obviously think, and then then he went on to elaborate a little bit about that. He said, you know, when you take a loss, you've got to take a loss. That's what happens in life. That's what happens in boxing. You take your loss. You don't blame everyone else. You just take your loss, you move on and you come back. Incidentally, as Breland has done, like I said, two time, you know, World trade champion of the world took his loss, came back and won the title back again. So um, he was quite dismissive of Wilder and seemed to say that he just couldn't cope with the loss, surround himself with yes men, as we suspected was the case. And you know doesn't seem to, to be on any sort of trail towards coming back um, anytime soon. He also there was a few inter- interesting insights as well into the wilder camp. He said you know he doesn't skip, he doesn't hit the heavy bag, he doesn't hit the speed ball. Um, he said all he's got is power. All he's got is his power. He completely relies on that. And he said you know if he does come back, let's see how far that will take him. And I think within those words was the the uh, summarisation that he doesn't expect it to take him very far. So in Mark Breland's view it seems that Wilder is done. So a very interesting insight and if that is the case then obviously we do have the final settlement of all this really in in the Joshua Fury fight coming up hopefully in a few weeks time. So we'll finally find out who's going to be number one who's going to be on top. It looks like Wilder as we suspected is kind of sidelined by his own ego unfortunately. The other thing Breland said which was very interesting. He was asked to give you know an insight into what he thought about the Fury AJ fight. Now his opinion <coughs> was that Fury wins. He said Fury is amazing at mind games. Um, he, he plays that brilliantly. I suppose we knew that, but you know he's been directly in the camp watching the effect it has on the fighter. And he said Fury is very good at getting inside people's heads. He also criticised AJ. You know he said you know he's, he doesn't have a jab. He should have used a strong jab against Ruiz. Doesn't use his jab effectively uh, and doesn't move enough. So, you know, he was, he was very much plumping on Fury's side for the A.J. Fury fight. So, you know, a fascinating insight from a very accomplished and very dignified man, you know, on the fight is right with, with Spencer Fear and Tundia AJ. So, go on YouTube and check that out if you want to see that interview. You know, a great insight, but it kind of seems to wrap up the Wilder story. I'm sure it's not over. I'm sure there will be some sort of comeback, but it was an interesting insight from somebody who really knows. Um, as to what's going on with the man. So I think we kind of have to put Wilder at one side until he actually does something now, and uh, you know, focus on, on what's going to happen with Fury Joshua. So another little development, maybe not the development we wanted to settle this. You know, we wanted Wilder to come back and see what he had, but at the moment, it doesn't look like he's going anywhere fast.
4: Mark Breland has fired back at Deontay Wilder. Wilder, of course, accused Breland several weeks ago of essentially being a double agent for Team Fury. He suggested that Breland stopped the fight at the behest of Team Fury. And he also claimed that his water had been spiked with some type of sedative and that Mark Breland may have been the man behind it. In addition to this, he leveled some accusations at the referee, Kenny Bayliss claiming that Bayless was either drunk or was in on the plot, and he leveled some direct accusations at Tyson Fury as well, claiming that Fury had tampered with his gloves and put egg weights in them, bizarrely. Now, to be fair, boxing does have a long history of these type of shenanigans, but they were mainly in decades long since past And in this particular instance, Deontay Wilder offers not even a shred of tangible or credible evidence to support his claims. He appears to simply be a fighter who is hopelessly deluded and struggling to come to terms with the fact that he was beaten up by the better man on the night. Now to address Mark Breland's responses directly, I'm going to be Reading quotes from this talk sport article. If you want to watch the full interview, it is available on YouTube. It's an interview that was conducted by Tunde Ajayi and Spencer Fearon. As I say, I'll be reading the quotes from this talk sport article. So, first of all, he says that him and Deontay are done. He says, with Deontay and I, that's a part of boxing, I guess. His career is done now. So, I'm done and he's done. I'm done with him. He says, well, one thing you all like to say is that he's got a lot of power and that's all. I wish him well and that's it. Only got his power and we'll see how far that takes him. That's all I'm going to say. With regards to the spiked water, he said, I mean, so many people know me. My character speaks for itself. Spiked water? If you're looking at the tapes or whatever, you don't ever see that water in my hand someone else has given him the water. And regardless of that, I'm there to help you. My attitude is, when you win, I win. I've seen some foolish people talking about me and talking about that fight. Come on now, only foolish people come out with stuff like that because it's crazy. If you know me, you know me. Goes on to say, uh, with regards to the glove tampering allegations that Wilder leveled at Fury, he said, I doubt it very much. I don't know, I've never seen or I never seen nothing. But still at the same time, he's not going to beat Tyson Fury regardless. JD's was standing right there when the man was getting his hands wrapped. If they put something in there, either Jay's blind or... Jay's right there when he's getting his hands wrapped and he didn't say nothing. But to be honest, that's how much he knows about boxing. Hell, he probably could have put a cast up in there and he wouldn't have known. So... (laughs) He's taken some swipes there at JD's and I'll come back onto that in a second. Now, this is where it gets a little bizarre, (laughs) right, from Mark Breland. He said, if I box the guy, the guys he boxed, and he's talking about Deontay's opposition here, I'd beat them. That's the bottom line. Uh, You say he's got good wins. He's got a good win. And he's talking about the Luis Ortiz fight. That's his only good win, as far as Mark Breland is concerned, on Deontay Wilder's resume. He says that Wilder doesn't really have a jab and he only used it one time against Berman Steverne. And he says in training, Wilder doesn't hit the speed bag. He doesn't jump rope and he doesn't hit the heavy bag. I'll come back onto that as well. Now, first of all, the thing I want to address is what he says about JDs. Now, JDs, as far as I am aware, is the head coach for Deontay Wilder and always was the head coach. Mark Breland was kind of brought in as a secondary coach. Now, situations like that can work as long as the two coaches are on the same page in terms of who is the head coach and who should be the head coach. But in the case of Mark Breland, this is somebody who is a world champion. This is somebody who is a fantastic amateur. This is somebody who has far more hands-on experience in boxing than JD's does. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that Mark Breland's a better trainer because good fighters or even great fighters don't necessarily make great trainers and vice versa. You get some fighters who weren't very good, but they make fantastic trainers. And you can find this in many sports, not just boxing. But you do wonder whether there was tension there all along between Mark Breland and JD's because of the fact that, or the possibility that one of them, or maybe both of them felt like they should be the head trainer and the other guy shouldn't really be involved. You do wonder if there was that kind of situation going on behind the scenes. And based upon what Mark Breland has said here, taking a swipe at JD's, perhaps there was. Perhaps JD's was somebody who was whispering in Deontay Wilder's ear a lot. And, you know, maybe... Mark Braylon didn't like that. Maybe Mark Breland felt like JD's was either going behind his back. or I mean, we can only speculate. Now, as far as the Deontay Wilder fanboys, they are very hung up on, let's just say, ethnicity. In this particular instance, I want to know how they reconcile the fact that Deontay has chosen to stay with a guy who isn't of the same ethnicity and JD's And fired a guy who is of the same ethnicity in Mark Breland. Going to be interesting to see (laughs) what their response is on that. And it's just for comedy value. Because I'm not really interested in what these people think. Because they're all crazy. But just for entertainment value, sometimes it's a laugh to have a look at what the Deontay Wilder fans are saying. Now... As I say, this is where it gets a little bit twilight zone when Mark Breland starts talking about he could beat the people that Deontay's beat. I don't know if he's talking literally or if he's talking stylistically because Mark Breland, excuse me, was a welterweight. He's now, what, in his 50s? Surely he doesn't mean that right now in his 50s or even when he was in his prime, he could get in the ring with heavyweights guys like Stavern and Ortiz and Tyson Fury and all the other guys, surely he doesn't mean when he was a welterweight contender and champion back in the days, he could have got in there and beaten the guys Deontay's beat literally, or worse still, him as a 50-odd-year-old man doing it now. <laughs> I hope he means stylistically. I hope he means his style and his skill set and his knowledge would have been enough to beat all the guys Deontay beat. Okay? Now, as far as what he said about Deontay's training habits, that he doesn't jump rope, he doesn't hit the speed bag, he doesn't hit the heavy bag, I wouldn't necessarily see that as a bad thing because sometimes fans and fighters assume that in order to be the best, in order to be a a world champion or just the best version of yourself, you have to use the same training methods and the same training equipment as all the other guys. But that's not the case. You do whatever works for you. Some guys never hit the speed bag at all. And I'm talking about some top level fighters. Some top level fighters, certainly in the past, they never hit the pads. Some of them never hit the bag. James Tony was a guy who hated hitting the heavy bag. When he first hooked up with his trainer, Pops Miller, Miller had him hit the heavy bag for like half an hour straight, just with the jab. And after that, Tony said he stayed away from the heavy bag for the, most of his, you know, for the rest of his career, for the most part. He didn't like hitting the heavy bag at all. James Tony favored sparring. That was his favorite thing to do in training was sparring. Chris Eubanks Sr. was like that a lot as well. He loved the sparring. He didn't really like a lot of the other training, and he placed most emphasis on sparring rather than doing the other stuff. Uh, Julio Cesar Chavez Sr., He'd never hit pads until very late on in his career when he hooked up with Manny Stewart. Manny Stewart was surprised to learn that Julio Cesar Chavez Sr., who was multi-time world champion by then, he'd never hit the pads before in his life. So I don't think it's necessarily, you have to look at it on a case-by-case basis, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that a fighter like Wilder isn't doing certain things like here. I mean, I don't really place much stock or much importance in hitting the speed bag anyway i think when that was invented way back in the days it was a bit of a gimmick and i still think it is a gimmick now i don't really see the the practical application of you know training on a speed bag how that's going to help you in the ring maybe it'll help you strengthen your shoulders and keep your arms up maybe it'll help you concentrate on a on a target i don't know but for me personally From my own boxing experience, I never really gained much hitting a speed bag and I I didn't really do it much. I was far more into sparring, shadow boxing, heavy bag, technical drills, all this kind of stuff, and sprint training, doing a lot of explosive sprint training. But I guess it depends on what kind of fighter you are. Maybe it depends on what your, your natural aptitudes are. Some fighters might need certain areas of their game boosting And something like the speed bag might come in handy for that. I don't know. But other fighters who don't need that same area of their game boosting, they're not really going to find much value in using a speed bag, you know? With the heavy bag, a puncher like Deontay not hitting the heavy bag very often is not really a problem because he hits so hard, right? It's not like he's a guy who isn't hitting that hard and you want to try and improve his power, but he's reluctant to hit the bag. No, this is a guy who hits tremendously hard whether he uses the bag or not. And perhaps Deontay didn't like hitting the bag because of the hand troubles he's had and the arm trouble. I mean, didn't he break his arm or something in one fight? Was it the Chris Ariola fight? So he's kind of brittle like that. He's a bit fragile in terms of his bone structure. So maybe he doesn't like hitting these big heavy bags and stuff like that. Or maybe he finds it boring. Maybe he needs a, an opponent in front of him. Maybe that's what gets his juices flowing and makes it, Enjoyable for him to train, you know. Now, as I say, uh, hopefully, <laughs> Mark Breland is talking stylistically when he says he could beat Deontay's opponents, but he might not be because he all, he goes on to say that he could beat Anthony Joshua, <laughs> and this is real Twilight Zone stuff. Now, this is not the first time that Mark Breland has said some stuff which is way out there. I remember in the lead-up to one of the Fury fights, it may have been the first Fury fight, can't remember if if it was the first or second, but Breland came out and basically said that Tyson Fury can't box. And that was a real eye-opener to me because I was thinking, did you see the Vladimir Klitschko fight? I mean, maybe he wasn't explaining himself well, I don't know, but to say that Tyson Fury can't box and he doesn't really have much in his arsenal was an absolutely bizarre thing for Mark Breland to say. And at the time, I did a video saying that Mark Breland is clearly caught up in the Deontay Wilder slash PBC cult of delusion because he was coming out saying all kinds of delusional stuff. And maybe that is still the case. You know, maybe he was caught up in that cult of delusion and maybe he's still in it to some degree. With that being said, Mark Breland, again, has a lot of experience, amateur and pro, He was a world champion. He was a crunk fighter and a bit of a legend in that crunk gym. And looking at the Deontay Wilder Tyson Fury rematch, he did have Deontay Wilder's best interests at heart when he stopped the fight when he did. So it is what it is. But Mark Brillan himself is not exactly infallible. You know, he's not somebody who every word that comes out of his mouth, I'm going to take as gospel truth. Or Every analysis he offers, I'm going to take as accurate and uh, a good assessment because what he says about Anthony Joshua, what he says about Deontay Wilder's opponents in the sense that he feels he could beat them. Again, if he's talking about stylistically, okay. But I, I, I don't know, man. I think that he might actually be talking about literally, you know? Now, with regards to what he says about AJ, He says he doesn't have a jab at all. When he fought Ruiz in the second fight, people talked about the jab. That wasn't a jab. He was just doing feints. To fight a guy like him, I would out jab him. I don't think he'd be able to touch me. I'd put him to sleep. The jab can bang that chin and put you down. Fury would beat him up. He's good at mind games. He plays with these guys. He's playing with their heads and guys get mad or frustrated. So frustrated it can throw them off their game. I'm a fighter. I watch boxing. I watch fighters. From my eyes and what I see, I could beat him. He's just straightforward. He's not hard to hit. There you go. What do you guys think? Could a 50-something-year-old former welterweight, you know, world-level welterweight, beat Anthony Joshua today, who's in his early 30s and a unified world heavyweight champion, 6'6", forty pounds, Mark Breland, Let's say, he was a welterweight back in the day. Right now he's in his 50s. (laughs) I think he's about 6'1", 6'2", Mark Breland. I mean, I wouldn't give Mark Breland much chance. Would you? Let me know what you guys think in the comments below. It's the bizarre saga of Deontay Wilder. And even though Breland is more realistic than Deontay, not as deluded as Deontay, to me, he still comes across as deluded to some extent. (laughs) So the whole Deontay Wilder world, everyone associated with that team is either delusional or they've got ulterior motives and they're very manipulative and they're manipulating Deontay. I don't think Breland was one of the guys who was manipulating Deontay. I suspect, I'm not making any accusations here, but I suspect that the likes of JD's, Shelly Finkel, and perhaps even Al Heyman, we're manipulating Deontay. Yeah. Those guys to me don't come across as delusional, but potentially they could be manipulative. Whereas Breland to some degree delusional, but I think he had honest intentions and as delusional as he may have been and may still be to some degree, you need to have people with honest intentions in your team. You need to have people to actually have your best interests at heart. But Deontay not being a very bright guy cannot tell the difference between those with honest intentions and those who are manipulating him. Deontay appears to be somebody who is so egotistical at this point that anybody who blows smoke up his backside, he wants to retain and keep them on the team. But anybody who tells him some home truths and tries to bring it back down to reality, he wants to keep them off the team. <laughs> so. Anyway, let me know what you guys think about all this in the comments below. Come and join me on Patreon and access my weekly no-holes-barred censorship-free podcast where we lift the lid on a wide range of controversial topics. It's not mainstream friendly, it's not politically correct, but that's the whole point. We dare to stand as a beacon of reason against an army of insanity. Just head on over to my Patreon page and select the tier called Hatman Hot Topics. You'll gain access to a minimum of two hours of exclusive content every single week, including podcasts, videos, interviews, live stream Q&A sessions, as well as my popular Confessions of a Nightclub Bouncer series. Not to mention a vast back catalog of hundreds of hours of previous episodes. You can listen via the Patreon app with the option to download in high quality MP3. We've also got a Discord server where you can come and chat and hang out with myself and other members. There's no contract, no commitment, and you can cancel at any time. So come and join our community of free and critical thinkers by signing up with me here on Patreon today. Mark Breland put a statement out on Instagram to clarify a few of the things that he said in the interview that he did with Spencer Firon and Tunde Ajayi. So I'm going to read the statement in full. Now you can call this the official Mark Breland speaks. I've had enough. I'm going to say some things here that were reserved for my autobiography. Still buy the book. There's so much more. I'm also going to add a couple of pics. One of a quote from a daily news reporter where he says, the usually reserved Mark Breland is often quiet unless it's something he's passionate about. So true. And this is one subject that has me very passionate. Actually beyond passion. So... I'm not giving nobody this interview. I use my own platform since I've been open like a can of sardines. On the last podcast I was a guest on, damn, they couldn't even wait till the next show to talk about me. I went on that show with them following my request of no Deontay talk. But when you've been holding on to something for so long and you're off about it, obviously anyone can push your buttons and all kinds of may come out, but that's not the environment I would have chose to speak on. So here's Mark's take. I'll start backwards from the podcast I just did. Anyone who thinks I meant I can beat AJ or Deontay's opponents now at 57 doesn't require a response. At my age, the only fight I'll have is one for my life. I ain't getting hit no more. I've had my share of fights. As a fighter with a little experience, I'm speaking on what I see. I stand by my words that the skill set and boxing IQ I see on AJ and many of the fighters that my former fighter fought would not get past a few rounds with me if we were in the same era and weight class, obviously. As far as saying Deontay is done and I'm done, I meant with each other. I don't have no idea of what or where that man's career is going, and I'm not interested in trying to predict his career. The facts are that my time in the coach position with the bronze bomber changed drastically in the 12 years since I started with him. When he turned pro, JD's called me and humbly stated that he needed a trainer for a great prospect that he had at his gym. Boxing goes like this. You walk into my gym, I train you. I found you and sometimes I manage you too. So Jay was seen as the head trainer in the media, but I was the only one on the team with a boxing resume and I was the only trainer. This was okay with me because of my humility. I didn't have to be the one in front of the camera. I've lived that life. After Deontay became a name in boxing, new members joined the team and it got to the point where I didn't and don't have my fighter's phone number. I haven't spoke to Deontay alone in years. The things that I told Deontay to do had to be ran past Jay. Deontay had become untrainable because he was at the point of He knows more about boxing than all of us. So teaching a correct jab was not a priority to learn once he continued on his knockout streak. So a coach can only teach someone if they're willing to learn. We would wait for the champ for hours before he arrived at the gym and Jay would inform us of his mood. If he had a bad day, we had to be quiet, to not be on the receiving end of his wrath, according to Jay, in an effort to not be fired, And yeah, hitting the bag, jumping rope, and running is not high on the list for him. So if he don't feel like it, he don't. And Jay didn't seem to understand the importance of those things. So he would make it clear not to ask Deontay twice. If I tried to pull Deontay to the side to tell him what I see, Jay made it clear, don't say nothing. You don't want to make him mad. I've watched this man, Deontay, speak to many people very disrespectfully, And although I'm extremely humble and calm, I'm a man first. I stayed on the team because I've been there from the beginning and I believed with his power and willingness to learn more, he could be a force in the sport. I never thought anything this insane could take place. I should not have addressed who had the water because that accusation is so asinine it doesn't deserve a reply. Anyone who knows a tiny bit about boxing knows that we're tested before and after a fight So that's the end of that ludicrous allegation. And then there's the gloves. To that I say, that's the one time I'm glad Jay treated me like I didn't matter. So he does all the head trainer aspects. The witness for the hand wrapping, uh, the press interviews, everything where a camera is involved, except wrap hands, I'm the one for that. I'm not sure if he knows. In all those years, I can't recall seeing him do it, The last quote of mine I'll stand by is, the rubbish was on the canvas. I don't do much talking in the ring, but with Lloyd Hunnigan, I did a Muhammad Ali talking as I beat him up. You just can't be so disrespectful to someone in public or private and not expect to get your ass beat. Now, this chapter of my life slash book has come to an end and I won't be speaking about it anymore. To the ones who know me, I don't need to say anything. And to the ones who don't, I'm not trying to defend such ridiculous outlandish allegations. Lastly, at that fight, just as many others, we had no cut man because Deontay won't need it. So I'm not a doctor, but I know blood coming out of your ears and dazed eyes could be a brain issue and power comes from your legs and his legs were gone. So I made a decision to stop the fight and I do it all again. I have a son Deontay's age, And I'm not looking to see him go out on his shield. Okay, so that's the statement. Let's start from the beginning. He clearly isn't happy about the fact that Spencer Firon and Tunde Ajayi on their podcast got him to talk about the Deontay Wilder situation when prior to the interview, he specifically told them no Deontay talk. All right. Secondly, and I'm really relieved about this, he clarified what he meant by saying that he could beat Anthony Joshua and any of Deontay's previous opponents. He was talking in a stylistic sense, in terms of skill set. He didn't literally mean that at 57, or even when he was in his prime, as a welterweight, he could step in there and beat AJ or any of Deontay's previous opponents. He did mean in a pound for pound stylistic matchup. And I'm glad that he, he uh, <laughs> clarified that because Mark Braylon has said some things in the past that sounded a little off. And I was wondering whether he was maybe losing his marbles slightly. Thankfully, he's clarified it and he did just mean stylistically. So I'm, I'm relieved by that. Now, as for whether there's any validity to that, whether he, you know, pound for pound could have beaten an Anthony Joshua or any of Deontay's previous opponents, it's a very abstract concept. This is why I don't really get into pound for pound that much because it's so abstract, particularly when you're dealing with heavyweights because in the heavyweight division, the weight disparity between different fighters, the reach disparity is so huge. How do you scale up a welterweight to heavyweight and know what weight he would be exactly? Would he be 210? Would he be 215? Would he be 250? How tall do you make him? Six, seven, six, five, six, four. just take Deontay Wilder against Tyson Fury, for example. How much weight was Deontay giving away in the Tyson Fury rematch? Was it something like 30 or 40 pounds? You don't give away 30 or 40 pounds in weight when you're fighting at 147 pounds welterweight. You know what I mean? So how do you scale that up? How do we know how Mark Breland as a heavyweight would do when he's giving away 30 or 40 pounds to somebody? You see it. There's just so many variables when you're trying to scale up a welterweight and imagine them fighting a heavyweight. Do you understand? This is why I really don't like getting into pound for pound. On top of that, I do not believe that boxing attributes scale up in a linear fashion all the different boxing attributes when you are trying to imagine a welterweight as a heavyweight. So, for example, if you take a welterweight and scale him up to heavyweight, let's say you make him six, five, does his punching power scale up the exact same amount as his punch resistance? Because I would say no. I would say that the punch resistance, when you increase the size of a fighter, doesn't scale up as much as the punching power does. And this is one of the reasons, not the only reason, one of the reasons why Heavyweights at the top level get knocked out a lot more than welterweights at the top level because the punch resistance pound for pound is not as good at heavyweight generally as it is at welterweight. That's one of the reasons. Also, because the heavyweights are slower, they get caught more cleanly, they're not as skillful generally as welterweights, and so on. But I do believe that the punch resistance does not scale up. So, just to clarify what I mean by that, let's say that on average, a heavyweight hits, I don't know, five times harder than a welterweight. I'm not saying that's the case, I'm just using some arbitrary numbers here. Let's say a heavyweight hits five times as hard as a welterweight on average. Is his chin five times as good as a welterweight's chin? I would say no. I would say the chin of a heavyweight might be only three times as good as a welterweight. You see what I'm saying? I don't think all the different attributes scale up in a linear fashion. For that reason, it's very difficult to know you know, Obviously, you scale a welterweight up, he's going to be slower. But how much slower is he going to be a heavyweight if he was a 6'5 heavyweight as opposed to a 6'1, 6'2 welterweight? You see it. It's a very abstract thing, very abstract concept, which I don't really like getting into. So, you know, you guys can discuss that. Do you think that Mark Brillin would be able to beat an AJF if you scaled him up to heavyweight? You guys can have at it with that. Now, as far as some of the other things that Mark Brillin said here, He basically goes on to talk about how he was the real trainer, at least initially, but JD's was the guy in front of the camera because Mark Breland is a quiet person and he's also a person that's been there, seen it and done it. He was a world champion, right? He was one of the best amateurs America's ever seen. He was in big fights. So to him, especially being a quiet guy who's in his 50s, He wasn't really interested in all the the limelight and being in front of the camera. This is what he says anyway. He wasn't really interested in all that. He was perfectly happy with JD's being the front man and him doing the actual work behind the scenes. He was happy with that. Now, he basically says that once Deontay started becoming successful and started becoming a name in the sport, new people started coming in and distance started occurring between him and Deontay. Okay. Whereby he hasn't even spoken directly to to Deontay in years. And JD's would kind of tell Mark Breland, you can't speak to the De- Deontay's the champ. He's the guy making all the money. He's the guy paying us. We don't want to get fired. So be careful how you speak to him. If he doesn't want to do certain types of training, leave him alone and so on. Now, this is something I've long since suspected. Remember I told you this This in recent videos, guys, that the likes of JD's, he's just interested in getting the bag. That's all, that's my opinion, okay? JD's is somebody who's only interested in getting the bag. I think the the pressure within the Deontay Wilder team to have the Tyson Fury rematch was coming from people like JD's, was coming from people like Shelly Finkel. I don't think it was really coming from Deontay, to be honest with you. I know he puts on a front and acts like, I'm a king and all this nonsense. But when he's alone and he doesn't have all the sycophants around him, all the yes men, all the cheerleaders, and he closes his eyes at night and he thinks back to that fight against Tyson Fury, the rematch, he's haunted by it. He might not want to face those demons. He he might not want to face that darkness. And instead, he just wants to surround himself with sycophants. I think this is the reason why he's fired Mark Breland. Because Mark Breland is somebody, through his actions, that was getting Deontay to face reality. But Deontay at this point is so... He's so delusional. And he's so afraid of facing reality. That anybody who tries to show him reality... He shoves them out of the way. He doesn't want them around him because Deontay in a recent interview said that Mark Breland was always a hater, somebody that was jealous. You see, this is the mentality of someone who's just on a mega maniacal ego trip. When somebody actually gives them some home truths, somebody that wants to help them gives them home truths, they take it. This person's jealous. This person's hating. It's a very, very shallow Superficial level of consciousness that Deontay Wilder has His perception of Relationships and stuff like that Comes down to, oh, he's just jealous Oh, he doesn't have as much money as me He doesn't have the fame as me He's not getting all the girls Oh, he's an old man Do you understand? This is where his mentality is at You look at Mark Breland Mark Breland is a quiet guy Does he look like somebody that wants the limelight to you? (laughs) But again, Deontay can't see this stuff because, again, he's living in this very superficial, materialistic, shallow world. And he thinks that the superficial things that matter to him matter to everybody else just as much. But no, Deontay, there are some of us who are much deeper than you, who are not so enamored by the shallow and superficial things in life. So, you know, that's what that is. Mark Breland basically saying that Deontay became a megalomaniac. Now, as I said in the previous video, when it comes to training, there is no one-size-fits-all training method for all fighters. Just because some fighters jump rope, just because some fighters hit the pads or hit the bag, it doesn't mean every fighter should. You have to find out what works for a specific fighter. But the fact that there was so much distance, according to Mark Breland, between Breland and Wilder, that to me seems to be more than just Breland didn't know how to train him. That to me seems like, at least the way Breland's making it out, it seems like Breland was trying to bring Deontay back down to reality and tell him some home truths. But Deontay was so gassed by his own success, by all the idiots. In the PBC Cult of Delusion, who are gassing his head up all the time, right? So gassed up by his own knockout record and all this nonsense that the likes of uh what's his name? Shelly Finkel, etc., were talking about saying, Oh, Deontay's the greatest puncher of all time, and this, that, and the other, and he's gonna destroy Anthony Joshua and there's nobody, ever, everyone's scared of him. They're just filling his head up with nonsense. He became totally delusional. And to some degree, Mark Brilliant, even though he's saying something different now, he did become delusional to some extent as well, All right? But nonetheless, his account of things is that he was the man trying to bring some semblance of reality into Team Wilder. Doesn't have much good to say about JDs. Basically paints him out to be a yes man. And I can well believe that. I can well believe that. And as a yes man, imagine he was going to allow his fighter to potentially get seriously injured, JDs, in that Tyson Fury fight. Seriously injured or worse. That's the actions of a yes man, because prior to the fight, Wilder had told him, don't stop it no matter what, no matter what happens in there, I don't have a fight stopped by my corner or whatever. Anyone who actually cares about the fighter will know a fighter needs to be saved from themselves. Sometimes. And that's what Mark Breland did, despite the fact that Deontay apparently told his team, don't ever stop the fight because he's on this warrior business. Breland went against that because he knew better. Because as he said in his statement, you know, he's no doctor, but when a guy's glazed, when a guy has blood coming out of his ear, and all this kind of stuff, it could be a brain issue. I mean, Mark Breland has been in there and he's put some hellacious beatings on people when he was fighting. There was a famous story in the gym of where he hit a guy so hard that his eye came out. Yeah, his eye popped out the socket. <laughs> there were people who witnessed it. That's how hard Mark Breland used to hit people. So. So, um, yeah, it it appears that Deontay is the megalomaniac delusional fool that we've all known he was for a very long time. And Mark Breland just gave an insight into what it was like dealing with somebody like that and what it was like dealing with the sycophants around him, like JDs. And again, that's my opinion about JDs. I don't know that, but. What Mark Breland has said certainly bolsters my suspicion that JD's is nothing but a yes, man. He's nothing but somebody who's interested in the bag, who just blows smoke up Deontay's you-know-what, and he's just interested in making sure the gravy train continues. (laughs) And that's it. That is not somebody that I would call a real boxing man. And that's not somebody who I would call, who I would say is someone that has the fighter's best interests at heart. And as for Shelly Finkel, I mean, are you having a laugh? Shelly Finkel? Who here really believes that Shelly Finkel gives two hoots about Deontay Wilder? Do you know anything about Shelly Finkel? Do you know anything about his history in the sport? He couldn't care less about Deontay Wilder, in my opinion. But again, the Deontay Wilder fan base are so delusional that for the longest time, they were making out as though Shelly Finkel was so trustworthy and Eddie Hearn's the devil, Eddie Hearn's evil, but Shelly's great, JD's is great. It's like I said in the last video, these guys are always trying to make it about race, right? Look at who Deontay Wilder chose to keep on his team. It weren't the black guy. <laughs> so all these guys are constantly making it about race. He didn't keep the black guy on his team, did he? He kept a yes man on his team, irrespective of what color he was. It's really not about color with Deontay. All that stuff is nonsense that he talks. It's about who's a yes man. Anybody that gets Deontay to face reality, he don't want you around. He only wants delusional people. See, this is what I'm talking about. For the longest time, Deontay is a very unintelligent person. You could fit Deontay's intellect on on a pinhead, okay? That's what you're dealing with with this guy. Yeah, he's a hell of a fighter. He can punch. But beyond that, there's very little intellect in Deontay Wilder's brain. This is somebody with a dangerously low IQ. And not that IQ is a particularly great measure of intelligence anyway. But nonetheless, I'm just using it as an example, right? Not a smart guy. So he falls for these traps. People gassing his head up, being surrounded by yes men. He falls for that. In this day and age, there's so much boxing history available for anybody to learn about. You can look at what happened to Mike Tyson when he became a megalomaniac by his own admission and got knocked out by du- by Buster Douglas. You can learn about George Foreman and go on throughout boxing history. The same thing repeating itself over and over again. Certain fighters start thinking they're invincible. All of a sudden, they get knocked off their perch at a point when the majority of the public felt like they were invincible too. There really is no excuse for not learning from history. But again, when you're dealing with somebody like Deontay Wilder, he's so unintelligent, that's why he doesn't learn. He feels like he's different to all the other guys in history, better. And that the things that affected them, they won't affect him. So rather than coming to terms with the fact that, yes, what happened to George Foreman just happened to him. What happened to Mike Tyson just happened to him. Rather than face that, oh no, 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 there was some kind of a uh, plot against me, and it was spiked water, and it was, uh, uh, you know, egg weights in the gloves, and it was all this other nonsense that he hasn't provided a shred of tangible or credible evidence for, dear old oh, dear. Let me know what you guys think in the comments below. I'm out. Come and join me on Patreon and access my weekly no holds barred, censorship free podcast where we lift the lid on a wide range of controversial topics. It's not mainstream friendly, it's not politically correct, but that's the whole point. We dare to stand as a beacon of reason against an army of insanity. Just head on over to my Patreon page and select the tier called Hatman Hot Topics. You'll gain access to a minimum of two hours of exclusive content every single week, including podcasts, videos, interviews, livestream Q&A sessions, as well as my popular Confessions of a Nightclub Bouncer series. Not to mention a vast back catalogue of hundreds of hours of previous episodes. You can listen via the Patreon app with the option to download in high-quality MP3. We've also got a Discord server where you can come and chat and hang out with myself and other members. There's no contract, no commitment, and you can cancel at any time. So come and join our community, of free and critical thinkers by signing up with me here on Patreon today.